Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 56 of the Summit for Wellness podcast. I'm your host, Brian Carroll. And if you've been listening to us for a while, then you may have noticed that we like to bring on different professionals to talk about ways that we can support our children to improve their health. And that's because right now, our children are not set up very well to be successful in making healthy choices. There's over 500,000 processed food products on the supermarket shelves that they can choose from with very, very little healthy options that they can choose from. And most of those processed foods are made out of three different ingredients, corn, soy, and wheat. So in this episode, we are going to talk with two uh, different people, Vincent Adams and Michelle Perro, who wrote a book about uh, what's making our children sick and why Every single generation seems to be getting sicker and sicker. So let's dive right into the conversation with both of them. Okay, today we have the honor of having two special guests on the show to talk about their book, What's Making Our Children Sick?, Dr. Michelle Perro is a veteran pediatrician with over 35 years of experience in acute and integrative medicine. She is currently lecturing, consulting, and working with Gordon Medical Associates, an integrative health center in Northern California. And then Vincent Adams, Ph.D., is a professor and vice chair of medical anthropology at the University of California. She has previ- previously published six books on the social dynamics of health, scientific knowledge, and po- politics, and is currently the editor for Medical Anthropology Quarterly. Thank you both for coming on to the show. Thank you for having us, Brian. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, spend some time talking with both of you about what's making our children sick. But before we start diving into the causes for uh, each generation becoming sicker and sicker, let's dive into your backgrounds a little bit and what motivated each of you to uh, write your book. So, Vincent, if you want to start and tell us a little bit about yourself, that'd be great. Sure. Thank you. So not many people know what medical anthropology is, but it's a, it's an, it's a branch of cultural anthropology uh, that devotes itself to the study of and the publication of books and articles on uh, the relationship between health and culture. So I had been working for many years, uh, mostly working actually on Tibetan medicine and health and alternative medical systems, but also on um, a variety of topics that have to do with the politics of knowledge and health and health care. And uh, about five years ago, I met Michelle Perro, and I, I started to learn more and more about her practice. And, and she started telling me about this epidemic of sick children that she had uh, been dealing with over the years. She was talking about patients who just weren't getting the kind of care they needed from their regular doctors. And she attributed a lot of it to the food that these kids were eating. Um, that they, she argued that they were getting an increasing load of toxicants in their foods, mostly from pesticides. And these she attributed to um, this major shift which happened in our food supply system in the 1990s 
uh, with the introduction of genetically modified foods. So I got fascinated by what she was working on and I thought, boy, you know, this is a really interesting topic and I think she's right. A lot of what she was talking about rang true for myself and my own family and for what I had seen in the students I'd worked with over the years. And um, I thought, well, boy, I'd like to write a book about her. And as it turns out, when I said to her, gosh, this would make a great book, or uh, you should write a, bio, a book about this, she said, I've been wanting to write a book for many years. And so that was the birth of a collaborative project to get this book written. I love it. Thank you for sharing your your background a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, Michelle, can you talk about your background and what motivated you to write the book? Yes. Um, by training, I'm a pediatric emerg- emergency doc, which means I dealt with mostly acute care in my whole career, Brian. And I, you know, I ran ERs and I worked in uh, emergency departments here in California. And what happened was there was serendipitous events that happened in my own life that steered me to this topic. Uh, the first was the birth of a kid. And for many of us who find ourselves in integrative health, who are traditionally trained Western docs, we often have a sick family member, ourselves, loved ones, etc. And my own son had some health challenges, which he allows me to share um, with people. But what that did was it introduced me to an area of integrative medicine called homeopathy. I had an encounter with a homeopathic physician. And once I learned about homeopathy, that kind of shifted my world on its head and I became curious, started studying it, and indeed I became a homeopath later. Again, I, another serendipitous encounter with a group of moms here in our area in Marin County that were working on stopping the spray of a pesticide against a light brown apple moth, which was to occur along the entire coast of Northern California. And these gals needed a pediatrician. And I was recruited reluctantly. Um, I didn't want to do activism. I had a very busy practice, small children, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, yes, of course I would. And so this was 2006. And these gals with their hardworking wisdom stopped the spray of this pesticide. I, mean, I don't know if people know how hard these gals worked. But what happened from that is I was asked about GMOs and what I thought about it. And Brian, I didn't know anything about GMOs and I didn't even know I should know about GMOs. And Lisa, one of the gals in our groups, thrust this book by Jeffrey Smith in my hands and she said, Michelle, read Seeds of Deception. And smart women speak, I listen. I listened, read that darn book and lo and behold, I learned about the work of a brilliant guy who first looked at the introduction of GMOs in the uh, UK in 1996, uh, published in 1998. And I had light bulbs popping off in my head because I understood, beginning with Dr. Arpad Pusti's work, the relationship of GMOs and their associated pesticides because you don't eat them alone, and this rapid deterioration in children's health that I was witnessing in my practice. Because you were saying all the health changing in the children that were coming into your practice and you started making that connection that it's to these GMO foods. Is that what you think is making our children sicker and sicker? Because as we see with each new generation, we're getting more and more disease and we're also um, seeing diseases that used to once be kind of rare to find becoming more and more prevalent. So is that coming from the pesticide use and the GMO foods? 
Indeed, I believe it is. And this is not based on anecdote. This is based on some good science. Now, you have to appreciate we don't have any human studies on the effects of GMOs and human health. This is all extrapolated from animal research. So that is one caveat that I have to say up front. So I asked myself the same question. Is it a problem with the GMOs, a problem with the pesticides, or a problem with both? Because as I said, you eat them together. And we have a lot of good research on the adverse health effects on pesticides on children's health. And glyphosate is what we focus on because indeed that is the herbicide that is used in conjunction with these herbicide tolerant plants. And we can go into more of that in a bit and Vincent can talk about that. But what I did appreciate was that the health issues were coming from kids eating GM foods and the pesticides and when I switched their diets, and now granted, Brian, I did a lot more than switch their diets, okay? I had complicated treatment protocols, but family members just had diets switched, and these people got better. And now we don't have science about this, but all we, these are called anecdotes. But I had thousands of kids and, and their families that I did this with, and, and they got better. I'd say 90% of them. So... Um, this is this is how it began and we are actively trying to get more research in this area but i'd have to say that has been my clinical experience and michelle as a pediatrician can you talk about some of the diseases and uh, different disorders that have been on the rise among children oh yeah i mean i wish i had a couple of days to go into this but for brevity's sake i'll just give uh, your listeners a a very brief overview that in essence it's a all illness, illnesses and issues in children are on the exponential rise. So let's start with some of the more concerning ones, which are called neurocognitive disorders affecting brain function, such as autistic spectrum disorder. That, since we even wrote the book, has gone up to 1 in 34 boys and affecting 1 in 58 kids. And by definition, that is an epidemic. Um, asthma on the rise, now affecting 1 in 8 white children, one in six African-American children. There is a massive rise in food allergies and food intolerances. Food allergies are the severe issues affecting approximately one in 13 kids. And overall food intolerances, such as sensitivity to gluten, we suspect are affecting 40% of kids. And in my practice, it was about 95% of children. We also have higher rates of obesity, anywhere from one in three to one in five kids, depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, issues regarding mental health disorders, which is very important because in Western medicine, we cut the head off at the neck as if these issues between the head and the rest of the body are not linked. In our field of integrative or bioregulatory or functional medicine, systems are biologically linked. And, and depression and anxiety or leading disorders affecting our kids, and it's averaging about 46% of kids. And I can go on and on. As you can see, this is a very concerning, dismal situation about our rapidly changing um, health in our kids. Yeah, and it's a very broad uh, sweep of disorders and diseases, too. So this might drop us down a little loophole here, but if you see an increase of people that have ADD, ADHD, do you think that these conditions are being exacerbated by either the food that we eat or the environment that we live in? 
Um, I do. And there are things in our diet. Now, um, I think a huge part of it is related to GMOs and pesticides. Um, and we have to spray more because of weed resistance, for example. They're getting Our kids get more. And there are many other things that affect um, neurologic development. It's Food is huge. And, there, and Vincent can go into this as well. But it's this, what we don't have any research on is this toxic soup of what happens when you add pesticides to parabens, the plastics, the styrenes, the solvents, um, and you put them in a toxic soup. And what you create is this allostatic overload of what kids can tolerate. We have created a sea of chronically toxic kids and whose body, whose systems, biologic systems, are just barely working because of this overload. And so that is a massive problem, and Western medicine, unfortunately, does not address this, and we are not trained to address this in Western medicine. And Vincent, can you talk a little bit about what are GMO foods, and um, what are the potential, in quotes, benefits of having these that we're told um, about having these foods as a standard crop? Um, sure. I mean, I, I want to add a little bit more uh, to the picture that Michelle was painting, and she did a really great job of kind of summarizing the insights that she was having around this epidemic and, you know, the rise in chronic disorders among children. And I, I noted your comment about how that's a lot, lot of different disorders. It's sort of like, you know, why would anybody be able to claim that one thing was causing all these problems? And that is definitely not what we're saying in the book. Um, what we're saying is that we are experiencing a sort of um, perfect storm, is what we call it in the book. A combination of kids living in a toxic environment from chemical exposures, like the ones Michelle talked about, and also from the foods that they're eating. So chemical exposures from the foods they're eating. And I'll get back to that. The second thing that we go into in the book is that we don't really have good models of clinical care that do connect all of these things that, that make it possible to see how people with very severe digestive problems also often have autoimmune problems, also often have mental health problems. So there are these models that we talk about in the book around things like leaky gut, dysbiosis, gut problems and the microbiome. And the new information on the microbiome is very compelling on this and uh, possibly turning our attention more to food, which is sort of like the missing piece in the medical model. There's some attention paid to food related disorders, but not enough. And certainly no information about the quality of the food or what's in the food that's also coming along with it. And then the third thing we point to in the book, creating this perfect storm, is the scientific community that's been completely embattled when it comes to the role of genetic modification and its risks or its safety. And, and so, yes, you ask, what are these pesticides? Well, you know, we kind of pick up at the post-DDT era uh, when everyone figured out that things that were being sprayed on crops to kill insects uh, and sprayed to defoliate um, great landscapes actually is, a is producing a toxic environment and causing cancer, killing off insect populations, etc. Well, in the post-EDT moment, the large agrochemical companies developed ways to create food crops that could either withstand the spraying of pesticides or that could be turned into pesticides in their own right. So what are we talking about here? There are many different uh, uh, 
efforts being made to create enhanced foods that can withstand frost and other things. But those really only constitute a very small portion of genetic modification in foods, like literally around 1%. What we focus on in the book are the two kinds of genetic modifications that constitute 90% of the commercially grown crops that we use in the, that we eat in the U.S., including soy, corn, canola, um, so, uh, sugar beets, and uh, uh, various forms of alfalfa that's fed to animals that we eat. So the first of these are the so-called Roundup Ready crops. And it's actually kind of interesting. I was, like Michelle, I was really skeptical of her claims when I first entered into this conversation with her. And after a period of time of reading the literature and looking at the controversy, I really started to think, you know, no matter what you say about this, the fact that we're producing foods that were either designed to be grown with pesticides that we now know are toxic, or that are turned into pesticides in their own right, cannot be good for our health. So the first is Roundup Ready crops, which is in it creating crops that can withstand the spraying of Roundup, which means they can withstand the spraying of the active ingredient in Roundup called glyphosate. Glyphosate, we now know, I mean, initially people thought that it wasn't going to harm humans because our cells don't have the same enzymatic pathway as plants, but we now know that our microbiome is filled with bacteria that actually use that pathway. So the impact of glyphosate on our gut is probably very serious. And again, we're only able to look at the animal studies which point to these kinds of problems. And we go over those in the book. We also know that glyphosate is a chelator, which means it might be affecting the chemical constitution of the body and the minerals that are needed for human health. We also know that it's a patented antibiotic. So that alone should stop most people dead in their tracks. Now, the second kind of pesticide that we talk about and that is an herbicide. Okay, pesticides are both herbicides and insecticides. The other kind is an insecticide called Bt, which is a naturally occurring bacillus that has been used for years to spray on plants um, and in theory washes off the plants before you eat them. Well, genetically modified crops which use Bt have the Bt protein inserted into their genome, which means that if an insect eats any part of that plant, it will die. And it dies from a form of gut penetration, creating holes in the lining of the insect gut that enables it to die from septicemia. So that's what we're eating when we're eating BT and Roundup <laughs> crops. These are the two things, and those two usually go together. They're usually stacked in most of these crops. So those are the controversial foods that we're talking about in the book. And we're actually saying, you know, given that we don't have any uh, actual human studies, the least we should do is have studies of this. We should be studying it. We should be verifying that they, in fact, are safe instead of taking industry's word for it because their reports don't do the job. And when you say that they're stacked, are they stacked within the same plant? Or? Yes. Okay. Yes, they're stacked so, within the same plants. So you're getting a little bit of both when you're having these type of foods. You're getting both the Roundup Ready and the BT um, modifications and those type of foods. In many of those foods. And keep in mind that those foods are usually the large-scale base ingredients for a lot of the packaged food that's out there. Soy, corn, canola, sugar beets. So yes, in most of those, you're getting the stacked traits. So you're getting both. And um, on top of that, I mean, I will say the other thing that we're now facing is this problem of resistance among insects and among weeds to these two traits. So they're increasing the amount that's being used, especially of Roundup. And let me just say that the amount of Roundup that's being used now is about um, up to around 300 times 
a 300 fold what it was what was being used 10 years ago um, and the maps are extraordinary and then you add into that the number of people who are spraying roundup in their own gardens and so there's a lot of it in our system almost everyone's got the residue in their bodies so the problem with the resistance is that we're now using even stronger formulations of chemical toxicants in order to deal with the weed resistance including formulations that were probably that are probably worse than DDT and are related to things like dioxin or Agent Orange. So we're getting increasingly problematic amounts of pesticides being spray, sprayed. We're also experiencing soil depletion from these chemicals. So farmers are having to buy more and more fertilizers, which are also chemical fertilizers to put on their crops. I mean, there are all kinds of agricultural implications of all of this around desertification and other things. So that's the, that's the argument against them. And is there any kind of regulations set in place to test the food that's out in the markets uh, to see if there's still pesticides that were previously sprayed or um, to test even the levels of the, the modifications of those GM uh, foods in the foods that are then on the market? Well, I, I can answer that, Brian. The um, There's no testing. Um, the um, industry itself has been responsible for their own testing. The EPA does not test our food for chemical residue or GM, GMO products. But because um, the majority of our crops are sprayed, we are all eating it. So unless you eat completely 100% organic, which most most folks don't, and even organic crops are allowed up to 5% contamination with genetically modified crops, they're in there. Um, the USA compared to Europe allows much higher levels of um, Roundup to be sprayed and other glyphosate containing herbicides because it's off label now um, to be sprayed. And so we um, are receiving much higher levels than our European uh, counterparts. But be clear, Brian, glyphosate, the main ingredient in Roundup, is used in over 700 preparations, um, various herbicide preparations around the world. And the other thing that people don't recognize is that what's really also very concerning, because as Ben San already mentioned, glyphosate is toxic. But when um, companies like, um, like Monsanto, now Bayer, produce this, they have these substances in the pesticide um, or, or, or rather herbicide called inert ingredients. Some of those inerts, which are proprietary formulations and we don't even know what's in them, are as toxic or more toxic than the original, original chemical. And that's been shown to be true in the literature as well. Pesticides were originally uh, put on all these crops because of uh, having pests that come in and wipe these crops out, right? So the more we use those pesticides, uh, the more those type of bugs can start to adapt and change. And that's where the GMO foods started to become like the next step. Is there a difference um, using a genetically modified food for crop growth compared to an organic um, method of growing crops? Like, is the yield the same or is there actually a difference in how much food comes out of a, a GMO crop versus an organic crop? Initially, what I was saying that GMO crops showed initially a, a bigger yield, but then after several years, the yield went down and farmers needed to put in more inputs to get to these crops to germinate. 
In addition, you know, the, um, it, the, it was said that um, these crops required less water. They actually require more water than regular crops. Also, what these crop, what these, what these crops do is because the, they are the massive spraying of uh, Roundup on the herbicide tolerant crops. Remember, when the farmers used to spray before herbicide tolerance, the crops they only could spray pre-harvest. Now the farmers can spray pre during and post harvest and so the soil has literally become dead there is no you need a healthy microbiome in the soil for the plants um, otherwise we're eating food with no nutritive value because as Vincent mentioned and this is key glyphosate uh, is a chelator and and blocks the mineral uptake for by plants of a key essential biologic nutrients such as zinc magnesium calcium copper, etc. And, and glyphosate, as Vincent, as is so important, mentioned, it's an antibiotic. So it kills off the beneficial um, bacteria in the soil that plants also require for growth. So we essentially have now dead soil. And also what farmers say is, and any farmer will tell you this, whether it's farmer Howard uh, Vlieger, in Iowa, uh, farmer Mike McNeil in Iowa, is that when farmers have been using glyphosate for a few years, um, in a few years, it's been 22 years now, and these herbicide tolerant crops, that when it rains, the soil doesn't absorb water and they're having massive flooding. And for those farmers that have used organic crops, they don't have the flooding issues. It's very interesting stuff. And we really need to refer to our farmers like, hey guys, what's going on here? These farmers yeah. also save a lot of money when they go back to organics because of other issues such as livestock loss. There are so many, the livestock eats the same crops um, and they have more pesticides in them, more GMOs, uh, livestock are fed more GMOs, more herbicides than we are. And there's um, a massive problem now for farmers of livestock loss that's not being considered at all. So I would just add that the National Academies of Science, uh, Medicine, and Engineering has actually come out with a report that, that affirms this idea that while the initial yield was good for farmers, the current studies all point to the fact that the inputs are so costly for farmers, the growing of crops in this way is actually creates more precarity for farmers, more precariousness uh, and, and less yield. Um, for the amount of money that gets put into them. The problem is that, you know, the big industries and the mega farms really are so deeply entrenched in these relationships with the agrochemical companies, it's very hard for them to um, break off. And even when you do get big farms that do break off, the problem of drift of the genetically modified crops into organic fields is so problematic. And it's, you know, there are many cases you could look at of farmers being put out of business because the chemical companies come after them and sue them for uh, using or growing GM crops that they didn't pay for because of the drift. So you know there are all these all these reasons to to be worried about it. Um, you know most scholars who write about this in any critical way point to the fact that the big agrochemical companies portray themselves as the farmers' collaborators, making it easier for them to both. Uh, produce good food and make money. And in fact, they are really their competitors at this point. And we really don't know. We have a lot of good examples of organic farming being very productive and alternative forms of 
uh, pest control and um, uh, weed control through regenerative agricultural techniques that work quite well. Um, it's just that it's not being sustained on the mass scale um, that it needs to be in order to make it the standard of, of food production in the U.S. Yeah, that's super fascinating about the yields, how they started off great and then it it definitely dipped down because that's one of the the uh, main selling points that the GMO companies have used in the past is that um, they're able to provide a much better yield. And they even talk about how the GMO foods uh, benefit uh, third world countries because they're able to create so much food uh, because of the yield. So to hear that uh, the reports are coming out that you actually don't get as much yield as you thought, that's that's super interesting to me. Yeah, especially in the third world case, it, there are many, many reports done by anthropologists and other scholars that show the impact of genetic modification being very harmful to, far, to small farmers, especially in many, many countries from India, Indonesia, all throughout Africa. It's really, and, and then you do hear a lot of, um, there are a lot of uh, promotional campaigns and a lot of arguments that are used by industry to claim that these are beneficial. The big one is that we're going to enable farmers to survive the beetle blight or the ringworm or the, you know, that they would be put out of business if it weren't for this by, by creating enhancements. Um, and the other is that they are going to feed the world. Uh, the third is that they've done studies and show that these are safe or that they're genetically the same thing as what has been going on in agriculture since time immemorial when people started to do agriculture period and change the gen genome of the plants they were growing. None of these things are true. <laughs> and there's a wealth of literature that shows that these things are not true, or at least that they can be discredited or, or that, that you could say that they're not entirely true. And one of the real hardships for people in this area uh, is that when people publish against uh, these foods, they are generally attacked by people in the industry or by people who have jumped on board with industry and who may or may not be paid by them, who come after the people who are writing against them. They do public smear campaigns and um, try to uh, get them fired from their jobs. Um, I mean, the list is very long of people who have whose careers have been ruined by this. Yeah, and that's a, a great thing to talk about. Um... Uh, Vincent, that when you step up and you say something against the GMOs and the GMO companies, you get a lot of people that sit there and they kind of roll their eyes at you. So what would you say to the critics um, that um, do that to your anti-GMO uh, practices? Well, first thing I would say is read our book. <laughs> uh, but, you know, basically the things we've told you, I'm sure Michelle has a great answer here too. But I mean, the first thing I say is, do you even know what these foods are? And I explain to them, as I did to you, what these foods are. And then I talk about the impact that it's had on farming. Then I talk about the impact that it's had possibly on animal health and then on human health. And then, you know, I mean, I think once... Here's the thing, a lot of critics don't really know what GM foods are, and a lot of critics uh, in, this, in my community, in the scientific and medical world, get really nervous when you talk about genetically modified foods in a controversial way, because they think that we're against all genetic modification. And of course, you know, in my 
university, there are so many great uses that recombinant DNA is being put to. And in the biomedical world, it really is taking off and it's very exciting. And certainly even work on the microbiome requires to some extent and on cancer and on everything else needs some of these technologies. So we're not against that. I mean, anything that's done in the biomedical world that gets fed to human gets tested on humans before it's used. And then the lab animals that are used with recombinant DNA, of course, they don't get fed to humans, so we don't worry about them. So my, my sense is that a lot of people just really don't know the whole story. There's such an effective campaign in support of GM foods, making the claim that they're just the same as regular foods and that they're safe. And of course, many people think, if they weren't safe, the EPA would never allow it, and the FDA would never allow it, and the USDA would never allow it. But in fact, in our book, we talk about why these ingredients and these, these uh, safety risks were never really acknowledged by those agencies. Everything that would, could have been done for safety of these foods really fell through the cracks. There were people warning about it, and, it, and then nothing was done. And then, Michelle, do you have a response to those critics? Um, indeed, I do, you know, and I understand why. Um, first of all, science is sexy and technology is sexy. And people feel that because it's techno technologically advanced, it must be better. And that's absolutely not true. And um, so we have this added thing that if we talk against science, we're anti-science. Actually, we're pro-science. We do it in the book. Um, I also run a website called gmoscience.org, which is a health-based science um, website looking at this. And we have collaborators from books on GMO myths and truths and other um, venues. And we collaborate with plant biologists and scientists, and we have so much excellent data that GMOs are not what people think they are, and there are adverse health effects. When, you know, Brian, I had this very same question when we first started this. It's like, really? Are GMOs really bad? They look and smell and taste exactly alike. If you eat like a corn chip that's GMO and one that's not, boy, they sure taste alike, don't they? So there are some really good studies, um, of course, in animals again, looking at just genetically modified food. And lo and behold, there are massive changes in the animals that were fed just GM without the associated pesticides on health. There are about five classic studies. And so we have good data from animals that these foods, which are gross, generally recognized as safe, put forward by industry, are not. And they are not equivalent to non-genetically modified foods. So we have to get that out here to consumers. Um, and this is important. And what Vincent brought up is scientists, physicians, et cetera, we are silenced. Industry has deep pockets and they don't want us studying this. It's very hard. There are, most of our studies come out of Europe, by the way, not America. It's very hard to study uh, modified seeds. Um, and there's a, a large amount of fear over um, speaking out and having your career uh, sabotaged. Yeah, a lot of Europe is pretty against GMOs, so I can definitely see that that's where a lot of those studies are coming from because they even talk about it in uh, the school systems there. And so people grow up knowing more about GMOs than we traditionally know here in the States. Indeed, that's true. We don't put it as a priority. Um, our media doesn't report on it. Um, we, we, can, we can guess why some of these things happen. Um, 
EPA is not, you know, watching it. We know the fox is guarding the hen house here in the U.S. Um, and we're allowing industry to go self with just self-policing, which we know is not accurate. Right now, as you know, uh, Monsanto is, uh, there's a, a trial going on in San Francisco as we speak. They're being brought to task um, because of a mass um, public health uh, lawsuit regarding cancer. Um, and glyphosate um, and the risk of particularly non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And you know that glyphosate was classified as a class 2A carcinogen by the World Health Organization in March of 2015. It's a known carcinogen in animals and it's a probable in humans. And the only reason why it's not a known in humans is because it's not been studied in humans. However, since Dr. Pusey, the, the scientist I mentioned before, did his original research on GMO potatoes in 1996, there were immune uh, issues that came up and early precursors of cancer. That was shown from the first studies. And we also know that when um, Monsanto first brought um, glyphosate to the EPA in 1983, they found evidence of kidney tumors, which then that data got squashed. So, you know, there has been a lot of um, political maneuverings, collusion, ghostwriting, and our friend and colleague, Carrie Gillum, wrote an excellent book. You should have her on your show called Whitewash. And she really um, goes into this topic in depth. Vincent and I cover it a bit in the book. Um, but she really um, outlines the Monsanto papers and uh, so much of the collusion that's gone on in the industry and their attempts to bring out this, that bring down the scientists who um, wrote about this cancer link um, through the World Health Organization. Okay, Michelle, and uh, I want to just step back real quick because you mentioned earlier that uh, glyphosate on crops blocks the uptake of various minerals into the plants. Uh, has there been anything to show that that also happens in animals or humans? It's been shown in cows. Uh, we have the plant uh, literature for sure. We, we have some animal research. Again, humans not studied. And we have to remember that glyphosate was originally brought to market because it was a metal cleaner, a key, uh, chelates metals, which means it binds metals. And the metals I mentioned before, which are called divalent cations, which are like calcium, magnesium, manganese. And the, all these uh, metals are part of enzymatic reactions in your body called cofactors. For example, zinc is one of the key cofactors in um, your body for immune function. So what happens is it binds up those metals and makes them unavailable to the plant, to the animal. Now what I can tell you clinically in, in my patients with you know chronic issues, when I tested their nu nutrient levels, they were woefully low. I mean concerningly low and part of my health uh, my health plans with many of these kids was nutrient restoration once I change the diets. Awesome. Well, let's start diving into um, different strategies that we can implement to uh, improve the health of our children today. So uh, let's start with you, Michelle, if you want to give us a couple strategies that uh, we can start doing. And then Vincent, if you want to jump in and weigh in on that as well, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think it's imperative for listeners um, to begin at home to change their children's diets uh, to organic. Um, there's really no working around this uh, and get away from processed foods. And people need to get back in the kitchen, Brian. And I say this and I don't mean just mom. I'm talking dads, 
kids can learn to cook. I know what a concept, right? We get kids in the kitchen, everybody's cooking, and um, we can afford organics if we change our eating habits. And it's hard, and many people live in food deserts, we know that, but we do the best we can. What I tell people is if they can't afford organic for any reason, to buy foods that are not genetically modified. And they can get rid reduce pesticides by washing the fruits and vegetables. Not as good, but second choice. Um, I also tell families um, to use a basic water filter um, because there can be many contaminants in water, not just uh, pesticides, but heavy metals such as lead. We all know that what happened in Flint. It's not an issue just in Flint, Michigan. Um, in addition, I ask patients and families to reduce their toxic exposures, not just internally and what they're taking and making the internal milieu healthier, but improving the external milieu by reducing the amount of toxic products, toxic cleaning, um, household products, um, and taking their shoes off at the door when they come in the house. And this is very true, particularly for people who live in urban environments and agricultural environments. Don't track those pesticides in your house because the kids are crawling on the floor and the dogs are running around with their pads picking up those chemicals. They lick their pads and lo and behold, dogs have the highest cancer rate of any mammal and it's now 1 to 1 1.6. Um, of our dogs. So we are not that far from our dogs, our cows, our birds, our plants. We are all linked in a web. And that was from directly from Rachel Carson. And Vincent and I refer to her a lot. So in the book, so we have a whole chapter dedicated to Rachel Carson. But so this is this is what I tell folks, if you were to come to my clinic tomorrow, Brian, you'd be getting that 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 lecture. So uh, in terms of my sort of intentions in the book or where we ended up making a plea to people, I would say there are sort of three areas that we really um, try to focus on. One is really trying to be conscious of the fact that many of the people we're around have food issues and digestive issues and health problems that they are trying to manage through healthier food. And there's a lot of pushback against that in certain places on the internet, in homes, in schools, even in families when grandparents refuse to honor the wishes of the parent who's trying to control their kid's diet. So we really say, you know, we really need to rethink this. It's not just a, a ho-hum, ignore this situation when it comes to food. And we really applaud people who are trying to uh, handle really difficult health situations gut issues um, and um, really trying to change the food they're eating and being particular about it and asking for things like gluten-free and asking for organics in restaurants. So we really applaud that and we call for people to really pay more attention to how to have a wider berth of sympathy and support for that. We also talk about the need to move beyond what Andrew Kimbrell calls, um, he's at the Center for Food Safety, the zombie paradigm in agriculture. We need to move beyond that, where we have this collapsing system of depleted soils, expensive and chemical dependencies for, uh, for fertilizers and pesticides uh, to grow our food. And we need to really think about how to shift over to more intensive organic and local food on a grand scale, not just in this neighborhood here and that neighborhood there. We really need to think about policies that will enable 
subsidies for these people who are trying to go organic and um, support them. And then the third thing we talk about is working with what we call the reluctant constituencies. And for me, this is the scientists and doctors who really aren't on the same page yet about this problem. Um, we talk about the need to think about health in terms of models that are eco-medical in orientation, where we think that the soil health is critical to gut health, and a person is only going to be as healthy as their ecosystem is internally and externally. So an eco-medical model really thinks soil health is key to gut health, is key to human health. And to do that, you really have to rethink our model of health and, and how we conceptualize disease. And um, also to get over this idea that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater on the, the science and the technology, uh, to really look more carefully at the issues of safety and health. Because, you know, we have these epidemics. We're going to have to deal with them. The next generation of doctors is going to be having to deal with these and having to come up with solutions. So um, that's where we go, and that's what I would say are sort of the take-homes of the book in terms of advocacy and, and strategies for change. Awesome, Vincent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Michelle, final question for you. Since you work with a lot of children, children can be um, uh, very stubborn when it comes to making any kind of changes to food, especially when you take away their uh, processed foods. So how can parents transition their kids away from processed foods and start eating better options? Oh, yeah, it can be challenging. And uh, particularly some of the kids with um, neurocognitive issues are so picky that parents are afraid that their kids are not going to eat anything. And sometimes they don't. So what I tell people to do is um, for kids, you have to go slowly. And sometimes it will take up to 10 times to introduce a child to a new food. And so you begin slowly. Um, and for some kids and what you do is you introduce things that they do like and oftentimes you can get away with smoothies smoothies seems to, to be um, foods that kids will often tolerate they like them and you can use um, things like coconut milk and um, pineapple and they have very good taste that kids like and they have a lot of sh sugar and then you can start to infuse the healthier foods in those smoothies um, I, what I don't like to do is, well, if we buy goldfish that are GMO and what have you, we substitute that for non, for not for organic goldfish. I think just substituting one processed food in, with an, with another, it's an okay first step, but I'd rather see kids eating, um, more whole foods that are non-processed and it's a journey. And sometimes Brian, it can take six months but we go low and slow. Also, parents have to remember they're doing the cooking, they're doing the buying. And if the food is not in the house, especially for older kids, they're not going to eat it. So I often ask parents to show me a picture with their iPhone. Everybody's got one. What's in their pantry? And I got to tell you, I'm often shocked. And I'd say, nope, it's got to go, got to go, got to go. I ask people not to buy that stuff and don't have it available. That helps also. Your nine-year-old's not taking the card keys and driving to 7-Eleven for a snack. So we, we could do that also. Um, and then, you know, getting your child, in, if they're old enough, usually five years old and up, maybe sometimes younger, involved with the preparation of their meal, they're more likely to eat it. So if they're getting their hands in the dough and what have you, and they're helping to chop if they're old enough to use um, a knife, you get a, there are some um, different kinds of tools they can use, they will more likely to eat the food. 
So these are just quick ideas. And with families, we spend way more time. And if kids really have issues um, and it's beyond my skill set, boy, I have no problem referring to uh, my nutrition friends, a lot of holistic nutritionists out there, and I, I get their help as well. Awesome. Those are great tips, Michelle. Thank you. Finsan, do you have any final uh, thoughts that you want to share with my audience? Um, well, I would love it if they would go buy the book and buy one for themselves to read and one for their doctor. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for letting us put a plug in there for the book. Yeah, of course. And Michelle, do you have any final thoughts that you want to touch on before we wrap up here? Um, my final thought to smart listeners is um, we, we know this science is complicated um, and to remember that companies are really interested in profit over your kids' health. Um, so to remember that and because it's scientific and or techno sexy doesn't mean it's necessarily better for health. Yeah, and that's a really sad thing to think about that they're, they're more uh, inclined to improve their pocketbooks than your children's health. Yes, <laughs> unfortunately. Yes. Okay, and since uh, Vincent talked about going and getting your guys's book, you can get it on Amazon or at any of the major uh, bookstores in the country. And also, is it Chelsea Green Publishing? Is that your publisher? Yes. Chelsea Green Publishing. So we'll have links to all that in the show notes at summitforwellness.com slash 56 so people can uh, go and learn more about your book. Once again, the book is called What's Making Our Children Sick. Thank you both so much for coming onto the show. It, I, it was a blast talking to you. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, valuable information you brought talking about the GMO foods that I think a lot of people don't know a whole lot about. And I think it brings a whole new light onto what these foods are doing, not only to our health, but also to the environment. So thank you both. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you very much for having us. It was a pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. Genetically modified foods has been a huge topic for quite some time now, there's been a ton of debate between uh, whether it's good for you or not, and now there's more and more research coming out that it might not be as uh, marvelous as we originally thought. And actually, uh, since recording this episode, just recently a bunch of research came out showing that uh, glyphosate was still present in a lot of the processed foods that are on the markets, and... I, I think this is kind of funny, but Cheerios, that heart-healthy food, uh, actually came back with the highest levels of glyphosate in it. So for a long time, the GMO companies said that uh, by the time the food gets to your table that these products were safe and there was nothing um left in the food, but now the research is showing otherwise. So it's definitely interesting to see um, where food is going, and it's really interesting to see this giant uh, science experiment that we are a part of and how it's all playing out. Okay, next week we have Kiran Krishnan, um, who is the microbiologist over at uh, quite a few companies, but the one that he's doing a lot of work with is Megaspore Biotics, which they focus a lot on uh, the gut microbiome and uh, probiotics that actually make it through your digestive tract and into uh, your gut to help uh, repopulate the gut. So that was a super fantastic 
episode, and I'm really excited to share that one with all y'all. He has so much valuable information about the microbiome, and like he mentions, we still don't know a whole lot about the microbiome, so more and more research is coming out on that as well, but we'll see how all that continues to play out with uh, the more research and the more studies and uh, the more we learn about the microbiome itself. So that will be next week. Keep on climbing to the peak of your health, and we will see you next time.